Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Donald Jackson. Ladies and gentlemen, I propose to discuss with you a 20th century version of the old Roman god Janus, who is remembered in major part for the two faces he presented to the world. Now, Janus was the first double talker, and mythology tells us that he could speak out of each of two mouths at the same time, making each statement, as divergent as it might be, sound entirely plausible to his listeners on both sides. Now, it took centuries to duplicate Janus, but the great state of Texas finally did it. <laughs> did it in the form of Lyndon Baines Johnson, and we can be sure that there are a great many very red-faced Texans over that historical development. Now, if you are a Texan or fond of Texans as I am, I want to make it clear that in discussing LBJ, the modern Janus, that I intend no indictment of millions of Texans who appear to have their heads screwed on straight and who give every indication of going to the polls this year together with their fellow Americans in both great political parties for the express purpose of sending Lyndon Johnson back to the ranch. <laughs> Now, of course, everyone jokes about Texas, about its ranch-to-ranch -ranch carpets, its oil wells, its oil millionaires, or how Texas chicken ranchers are so rich that they raise their feathered broods not in hen houses, but in coupe de villes. <laughs> but underneath all of that good-natured joshing, Americans know and share a feeling of pride in the contributions that from the Alamo to Vietnam, Texans have made in the building of our great nation. This in spite of the fact that Texans sent LBJ to Washington in the first place. Although there are sufficient well-founded rumors and documented facts to indicate that in all likelihood they didn't do it in the first place. For in the election which sent LBJ to the Senate of the United States, his margin of, quote, victory, unquote, was 87 votes. And a quick check of just one precinct following the election disclosed that not a one of 15 purported Johnson supporters would swear that he or she had actually voted. One said that he had been out of the county on election day and had cast no ballot. Another denied she had voted and declared herself actually ineligible to do so. Efforts to interview three others were fruitless when it was found that the three were dead and buried in the local cemetery. In famous Precinct 13, only 600 ballots were issued, although more than 1,000 votes were certified. Witnesses were produced in court who swore that they had not voted in the election, although their names were recorded as having cast ballots. In spite of the evidence, court hearings, affidavits, and testimony under oath, Democratic power from Washington made itself evident and LBJ went to the nation's capital where he was ultimately to assume the highest office in the land. It is little wonder that many Texans view Lyndon Johnson as a fraud and his record as a blot on the proud escutcheon of the Lone Star State. The office of the presidency is an institution in American life sacred to all of our citizens. However, the individual 
who occupies that exalted position is in no way immune to criticism or his record immune to close scrutiny whenever a free people choose to take inventory of their national affairs. The record of LBJ in public office, and I plead guilty to a rather loose usage of the word record, becomes an entirely proper subject for critical analysis this year when it is being laid on the line for public approval by the man who succeeded to his office following the murder of his predecessor, John F. Kennedy, by the Marxist defector, Harvey Lee Oswald. Like many another Texan, Lyndon B. Johnson is a wealthy man, so much so that one wag has suggested that he doesn't put the famous LBJ brand on his cattle at the ranch at all, but sends the animals to Neiman Marcus department store in Dallas to have them engraved. <laughs> now, somewhere along the line, his doctors told Johnson to slow down, cut out a few things. And acting on that advice, he cut out cigarettes in 1958, candy in 1959, and a few White House light bulbs last year. <laughs> Judging from the clear record, there is a growing suspicion that he may have been cutting out paper dolls since that time. Now, the title of my talk tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is Will the Real Lyndon Johnson Please Stand Up? There is a considerable and growing confusion in the public mind as to which of two public faces is that of the real Lyndon Johnson. The question is neither capricious nor facetious. One need only study the public statements made through the years by Lyndon Johnson on just about every political subject under the sun and one can understand a public uncertainty about which twin has the Tony. During his public career, LBJ has straddled issues, been on both sides of them, or flipped position on them at a pace that would do justice to a trapeze performer. In word and deed, he has demonstrated the same degree of consistency that one would expect to find in the administration of an insane asylum operated by the inmates. Now, when Lyndon used to stand for election down in Texas, and when he needed to dig up a few votes, and I intend no reference here to local cemeteries, <laughs> some of these diatribes were downright extreme, if not outright inflammatory. In those days, LBJ viewed civil rights, and his record in the U.S. Senate supports the statement with the same degree of affection which characterizes the traditional association between a cobra and a mongoose. Now listen to Lyndon. The Texas politician trumpeted his indignation about civil rights legislation when he was a candidate back in 1948. He said then, and I quote, the civil rights program about which you have heard so much is a farce and a sham, an effort to set up a police state in the guise of liberty. I am opposed to that program. I fought it in the Congress. It is the province of the state to run its own election. I am opposed, LBJ continued, to the anti-lynching bill because the federal government has no more business enacting a law against one kind of murder than another. I am against the FEPC because if a man can tell you whom you must hire, he can tell you whom you cannot employ. I have met this head on, unquote. Now, ladies and gentlemen, one gathers the impression that Lyndon Johnson the man who has crammed forced integration and forced association down the throat of America didn't always feel that way. 
especially during election years in Texas. In 1959, Johnson did sponsor, and for the first time, a so-called civil rights measure. What did his bill propose to do at that time? Briefly, the provisions of the measure, S-499, would have, one, established a community relations service to, quote, keep people in communication with each other, unquote. Second, prohibited, quote, interstate transportation of explosives for bombing, and interstate conspiracies to intimidate people with bombs, unquote. And three, extended the life of the Civil Rights Commission for two years. Now, hardly a second proclamation of emancipation. <laughs> During the election year of 1960, Lyndon Johnson was all over the place on civil rights. He orbited, re-entered, and sailed off into space again until both integrationists and segregationists were completely baffled as to where exactly he stood on the question. On June the 12th, 1960, the Democratic National Platform pledged technical and financial assistance to school districts facing special problems of transition as a result of the Supreme Court's school desegregation decision. LBJ, on August 11, 1960, voted against S-3823, which would have provided just such assistance as pledged by his party in June of the same year. The same Democratic platform of 1960 stated that the Attorney General of the United States should be empowered and directed to file civil injunction suits in federal courts to prevent the denial of any civil rights on the grounds of race, creed, or color. Senator Johnson had already voted against that plank of his party's platform on April the 4th, 1960. The record would indicate that neither Lyndon Johnson, the NAACP, CORE, or the American people at large really have the slightest idea where the real LBJ stands on civil rights. When Johnson signed into law the 24th Amendment to the Constitution, which abolished the poll tax as a requisite to voting in federal elections, he used a number of pens to sign the measure. And these pen mementos were handed out to legislators who had been instrumental in Senate and House in the passage of the constitutional amendment. Now, probably very few in attendance at the White House ceremonies on that day were struck by the thought that the souvenir pen were being handed out by a man who between 1957 and 1960 had voted not once, twice, or thrice against abolition of the poll tax, but 12 times. Will the real Lyndon Johnson please stand up? If the statements made in the past by Lyndon Baines Johnson on the subject of civil rights had ever been made by Senator Barry M. Goldwater of Arizona, we can be sure that they would be emblazoned today in liberal headlines and painted on the sides of every fence, barn, and outhouse from the Johnson shanty town near Otauga, Alabama to the segregated slums of New York, Detroit, and Chicago, where the aftershocks of hasty, ill-considered, and politically inspired civil rights legislation has touched the spark to national violence of the most tragic kind. The stark and unpleasant truth is that the administration headed by Lyndon Johnson has, in avid and calculated pursuit of minority vote blocks, trampled upon 
and ignored the constitutional and civil rights of millions of our people, and no amount of public preachment or pious protestation can conceal that obvious fact. The violence that stalks our streets today, the flagrant disregard of state, county, and local laws, the callous and arrogant disregard for the legal rights of others are direct and predictable results of open invitations to disorders and riot. And ladies and gentlemen, unless a higher order of statesmanship that has been demonstrated to this time by Johnson, Bobby Kennedy, and company is brought to bear on the situation, more blood will stain the streets of our great northern cities before the crisis is passed. The full impact of what has been done cynically and politically in the name of civil rights has smashed across the Mason-Dixon line and what was once called a southern problem has now become the personal problem of every citizen who walks the streets of northern cities today. The voices of responsible Negroes seeking to curb unleashed passions have been drowned in the shouts of mobs on the rampage. Citizens, black and white alike, fearful for their own safety, cower, while a fellow human is knifed to death within sight of scores of witnesses. Police forces, undermanned and crippled by court decisions, which appear to place questionable civil rights above established human rights, find themselves immobilized and frustrated in the face of planned mass disobedience of law. Lie-ins, sit-ins, stand-ups, and lie-downs, together with other forms of blatant trespass, and arrogant disregard for the comfort, convenience, and safety of millions of Americans. Civil anarchy, parading in beatnik dress under banners stamped civil rights, appears to have hamstrung law enforcement and hypnotized some of our courts and legislative bodies. And so we find the chickens of violence fluttering home to roost at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue where the architects and builders of a new order, panicked by the mention of a backlash on the civil rights issue, huddle together in a frantic effort to find a plausible political answer to a cynically inspired political question. There is a rising tide of resentment in America today. Millions of our citizens, not all of them extremists, whatever that loose term implies, are getting fed up to the neck with the whole mess. Included among those millions who will have an imminent opportunity to express their resentment at the polls are men and women who have led decent, useful, and meaningful lives in our American society. They have accepted every fellow citizen on his individual merit and at face value, and it made no difference whether that face was white, black, yellow, brown, or red. These Americans, with no political axes to grind, have been content to live and let live within the confines of just law honestly administered. Our people have been taught that ours is a government of law, and their resentment at finding it a government of men dedicated to self-perpetuation is great and growing. 
Now, on another front, Lyndon Baines Johnson asserts that he is an economy-minded man. The delegates to the annual meeting of the United States Chamber of Commerce, of all organizations, gave him a rising ovation when he assured them of his dedication to economy in government. Now, where LBJ got his facts and figures on economy is difficult to understand because the reports of the U.S. Treasury and of the General Accounting Office failed to bear out the well-publicized stories of Spartan-like austerity in government. Even allowing for the amount claimed to have been saved by turning off light bulbs at the White House. And parenthetically, it should be pointed out that in order to make the saving claimed by this example of careful husbandry, the folks around the White House would have had to turn off 2,083,333 100-watt bulbs uh, at least an hour each day. But there is nothing on the financial record to represent any economy or any effort to affect any. While the whole country has been flipping its top, so to speak, over ever-increasing expenditures, the clearest and most precise fact that can be garnered about economy and government remains the one having to do with flipping light switches at the White House. Maybe the light bulb story was leaked in the first place to a friendly and cooperative newsman at the White House. Managed news requires such friends at court. Actually, the news leaks from the White House have become so numerous and commonplace that they are now referred to as the Johnson Flood. <clears throat> According to the U.S. News and World Report, government expenditures during LBJ's first three months in office were higher than in any previous December-February period in U.S. history. New projects and programs, ranging from Appalachia and poverty to compulsory health insurance and related boondoggles, do not bespeak a future bright for economy of any kind. There appears to be no urge to cut back, cut down, put first things first, or dispense with everything not immediately vital to our survival. Now, Lyndon could take a lesson, if he would, from a fellow Texan, cowboy-hatted and booted, who wandered through the sea of exotic merchandise for which the Neiman Marcus store in Dallas is noted. Approached by a sales lady who asked if she could help him in his shopping, the cowboy drawled, no, ma'am, I reckon not. I ain't never seen so many things I could do without. <laughs> but things that we could do without have vote appeal. This basic political fact Lyndon Johnson learned long ago. Economy can't vote, but the beneficiary of a new federal dole can. So there's really no great problem for the advocates of tax, tax, spend, spend, elect, elect. Lyndon Johnson, although himself a very wealthy man, the richest actually ever to occupy the White House, not even his predecessor accepted, waxes almost unbelievably cynical when he launches forth on poverty and its cure. Now, representing a minority, in this case, those who count their financial blessings in seven figures, LBJ holds out that eternal carrot of new federal aid to those less fortunate 
as he urges support for his far-ranging proposals for federal bankruptcy. Here is a typical Johnson pitch, which he didn't use in talking to the Chamber of Commerce delegates, and I quote, we are going to take all of the money that we think is unnecessarily spent and take it from the haves and give it to the have-nots that need it so much, unquote. We will now pause briefly while the chamber delegates cheer. But in spite of the bad grammar, ladies and gentlemen, Lyndon makes perfectly clear what he proposes to do. Whatever he thinks is money being unnecessarily spent is going to be confiscated from a so-called have and given to an alleged have-not. Even FDR, whom Johnson has referred to as my second daddy, never went that far in his public utterances. LBJ may be extremely careful with his own money, but he shows little regard for that put up by someone else. One of his predecessors established legend by hurling a silver dollar across the Rappahannock River. But George Washington never came close to matching ability with the great hurler, Lyndon B. Johnson, who has and continues to hurl billions of dollars across both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans to say nothing of the Red Sea. Like any other record, including Lyndon's, this one has two sides. So we will pause briefly while we get to the other one. <laughs> the well-watered, carefully nurtured, hothouse image of LBJ as a great economist likewise represents the big man from the plains as a conservative. The fact of the matter is that Johnson is conservative only when his audience is. At all other times, his conservatism is on a par with that of Norman Thomas, Hubert Humphrey, and the late Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> One of Lyndon's proud boasts is that he is further to the left politically than was Mrs. Roosevelt. On this one point, the record and his own statements bear him out. In recognition of that liberalism, Americans for Democratic Action rated Lyndon 100% liberal during his senatorial service, and the opposite number of ADA, Americans for Constitutional Action, made the agreement substantially complete by rating him 90% liberal on 71 key votes from 1955 to 1960. In this connection, it is interesting to note just when Johnson departed the liberal banners to join forces with the conservatives. He did so only when a vote with the liberals would have represented a vote for civil rights legislation or when the highly prized oil depletion allowance was in jeopardy. As a candidate for the U.S. Senate from the great oil producing state of Texas, Johnson promised, and I quote, retention of the present gas and oil depletion allowance, unquote. By 1960, he had completed another orbit and had adopted the position long assumed by ADA, organized labor, and consumer groups, that of opposition to the depletion allowance, by announcing that he wanted an end to such, and I quote, tax loopholes as depletion allowance for the oil industry. 
In brief and in summary, there is abundant evidence to prove that Lyndon Baines Johnson is neither economy-minded or conservative. His formula for the administration of the nation's affairs is in no manner different from that of his Democrat predecessors in the New Deal, the Fair Deal, and the Miss Deal. Take it from the haves, give it, or at least promise to give it to the have-nots. Steal, buy, or burn unfavorable ballots, freewheel and campaign on tax money, take care of your friends, whether they be butchers or bakers, with emphasis, of course, on the latter, And the immutable law of the political jungle will ensure re-election. There has been a lot of talk lately about topless bathing suits. What should be of greater concern, ladies and gentlemen, is the exposure of the big bust that results from topless government. And that we have... And that we have in breathtaking magnitude. Will the real Lyndon Johnson please stand up? Now, one hesitates to embark upon the subject of the Department of State under Lyndon Johnson. In all fairness, we should say that LBJ didn't organize the department, if indeed it ever was organized, nor did he select the team that has established an all-time, all-world record for fumbles, ineptness, vacillation, timidity, and blunder. His offense is that on assuming the office of president, he did nothing about knocking some heads together, shaking up the department, and giving it a visible purpose for existence. Instead, and in spite of the clear and congressionally documented record of appeasement and pro-communist activity on the part of some of the hired hands, LBJ kept on the payroll and permitted promotion and preference for those who have demonstrated that they wouldn't recognize communist guile if they were locked in a telephone booth with Karl Marx himself with the latter trying to jimmy open the coin box. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dean Rusk and company, without executive restraint or reproof, have continued to muzzle anyone in the Department of State who has voiced concern over policies and programs he considered to be detrimental to this country. A clear case in point is that of the security officer, Otto Otepka, who, when called before a committee of the U.S. Senate, gave testimony under oath regarding irregularities and possible illegalities in the department's security procedures. For this unpardonable heresy, Otepka was suspended from duty and warned to refrain from discussing his case publicly under penalty of possible prosecution for violation of the Hatch Act. It is readily understood why security is a touchy subject at the Department of State, and certainly no agency of government has more reason to be concerned about public disclosure of some of its activities than those in the department who have consistently through the years promoted red causes by opposing and undercutting any anti-communist effort to frustrate the enemy. Those who joined in the hue and cry that Chinese communists were something different and were really agrarian reformers. Those who by cutting off aid to our allies, the free Chinese, ensured their defeat in the victory of communism on the mainland of China. Those who scoffed at the early reports that Fidel Castro was a communist and who bent all efforts to ensure the rise to power of the bearded red on 90 mile away Cuba, thus assuring the Soviet Union a beachhead within sight of the American mainland. 
those who continue to issue rosy reports about the political situation in Brazil, while the biggest country in South America was being pushed to the very brink of the red chasm, a disaster averted only when the Brazilian military took matters in its own hands and forcibly deposed the red puppet president, João Goulart. Those who joined hands, money, and talent with the United Nations to crush Moishambe and Katanga in the Congo, meanwhile lending support to the communist elements in the central government headed by the communist Patrice Lumumba. Those who ever encouraged open aggression by Indonesia's Sukarno against the new and pro-Western state of Malaysia. Those who, whenever confronted by a choice of alternate courses of action, have invariably taken the left fork in the road to the confusion of our own people and the frustration of our natural and longtime friends and allies. Those in the Johnson administration who, with executive blessing, have rushed to the support of the sagging Soviet economy with wheat deals, machinery deals, and promises of even further expanded trade. These bailouts, in spite of the report from the U.S. Congress that the entire Soviet system is staggering, not under the impact of a single crisis, but from many. The report issued by the Internal Security Subcommittee, not last year or the year before or 10 years ago, but in June 1964 says in part, and I quote, what is still not realized is the scope and gravity of the Soviet economic crisis. The fact is that the Soviet economy is afflicted by not one, but by many crises. In addition to the crisis in agriculture, there is a general crisis in industry. There is a special crisis in quality control. There is the raw material crisis. There is the crisis in planning. And above all, and pervading everything, there is the crisis arising from the lack of human incentive." Unquote. In plain words, according to the official report issued by a committee of the U.S. Senate, a committee dominated by Lyndon Johnson's fellow Democrats, the big crisis in the Soviet Union stems from the collectivist philosophy enunciated by LBJ when he said, and for the purposes of emphasis, I requote, we are going to try to take all of the money that we think is unnecessarily spent and take it from the haves and give it to the have-nots that need it so much. Now on that point, one further quotation from the Senate report as follows. That lack of incentive, which is a part of communism, accounts for the fact that although only three and three-tenths percent of Soviet farmland is in private plots which do not exceed one-half hectare each, the Soviet state in 1961 got from that three and three-tenths percent, 26 percent of all potato deliveries, 34% of all eggs, 15% of all wool, 14% of all meats and poultry, 7% of all green vegetables." Unquote. Obviously, the policy of taking from the haves and giving it to the have-nots has been a disastrous failure in the Soviet, yet Lyndon persists in voicing his support for that system. Will the real Lyndon Johnson please stand up? In the vital area of foreign policy, Johnson has demonstrated nothing more vital and compelling than the type of diplomacy which kicks allies and administers adrenaline to our foes. The conduct of the U.S. diplomatic hand and the playing of our trumps and aces reminds one of the bridge beginner who, turning to the best player in the foursome, asked, how would you have played that last hand? 
under an assumed name was the prompt reply. <laughs> but our national cards have been played before the whole world to the frustration of our friends and to the satisfaction of our foes. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, fashioned with care and foresight as a shield and a sword against Soviet aggression in Europe, rocks and reels today under the impact of Johnson-McNamara policies. In steady succession, from Katanga in the Congo to Vietnam in Southeast Asia, the military and diplomatic blunders of the Democrat administration have created tempests and vacuums which have made our natural allies afraid to trust us and our enemies hoping that they will. We have in succession booted the British, the French, the Dutch, the Portuguese, the Laotians, the Katangese, the Brazilians, the Peruvians, and the free Cubans in exile, the while extending our moral and financial support to Indonesia, Yugoslavia, Romania, the Soviet Union, Ghana, Guinea, India, British Guiana, and other actual and potential enemies sworn to our destruction. It is small wonder that our puzzled friends prefer to build and maintain their own capacities for self-defense. They are not unlike the punch-drunk boxer in his corner between rounds, his seconds working hard to keep him conscious, assured him that his opponent was practically finished and had not, in fact, laid a glove on him during the entire fight. Well, in that case, mumbled the dazed and weary fighter, keep an eye on the referee because somebody's beating the hell out of me. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Secretary of Disarmament, Bob McNamara, yo-yos back and forth between Washington and Southeast Asia, emitting frequent press conferences with all the self-assurance of Nelson Rockefeller lecturing a group of Catholic nuns on the evil of divorce. <laughs> While the war in Vietnam pursues an uncertain and frustrating course, LBJ continues his dangerous gambits with the enemy on other fronts. He has urged Congress to extend commercial credits to the communists, credits backed by the U.S. taxpayer. While chastising France for a trade compact with the Red Chinese, American wheat was being shipped to the Soviet Union and new commercial arrangements established with communist Romania. We are maintaining in the name of accommodation and coexistence, a collision course that is fraught with terrible consequences. Now, Lyndon Johnson used to have a sign that hung in his Washington office. It read, you ain't learning anything while you're talking, which may furnish a clue as to why the administration brass seems to have acquired so little information for so many months, because talk has been the principal evidence of occupancy. Lending added weight to the conversation motive is the fantastic White House telephone bill of $25,000 a month, a goodly portion of which is probably being expended for the purpose of getting LBJ reelected. What the American people want and need is an end to double talk, evasion, and misrepresentation. They want some forthright assurances from Lyndon Johnson, which do not, as they so often have in the past, take the form of campaign speeches. They want to hear from LBJ himself whether Norman Thomas, on six occasions, the presidential candidate of the Socialist Party, was right 
when he said of Johnson in Chicago recently, and I quote, we all have reason to be grateful to him in the way he is handling civil rights and poverty. I ought to rejoice, and I do. I rub my eyes in amazement and surprise. His war on poverty is a socialistic approach and may be the number one issue in the 1964 campaign, end quote. Now, obviously, ladies and gentlemen, either Mr. Thomas is right or the Chamber of Commerce delegates are. They can't both be correct. Socialism has been defined as naked communism dressed in a bikini bathing suit. And I, for one, am prepared to accept Mr. Thomas himself when it comes to judging how much cloth is required to keep socialism out of jail on a charge of indecent exposure. <laughs> Will the real Lyndon Johnson please stand up? Stand up and tell the American people, his countrymen, how he proposes to keep firm hands on the wheel of the American ship of state when, as once he said, and I quote, Bobby Baker is my strong right arm, the last man I see at night and the first one I see in the morning, unquote. With a strong right arm like Baker, it is easy to understand the difficulty involved in steering anything resembling a steady course. Senator Hugh Scott of Pennsylvania charged that orders to quash the Baker probe originated in the White House. In any event, the arbitrary action of the Democratic members of the investigation in choking off the inquiry with nothing more than a slap on the Baker wrist leaves the whole mess in an advanced state of putrefaction and still leaves unanswered the many questions which Lyndon Johnson's protege, Bobby Baker, refused to answer on the grounds of possible self-incrimination. The currents and riptides of the Bobby Baker case are such as to cause a reasonable presumption of very dirty work at the Washington crossroads. And for the President of the United States to remain silent in the face of evidence of double dealing and influence peddling by his protege is to raise an entirely proper question of integrity and morality at the highest level of the United States government. <laughs> government by crony is an engraved invitation to corruption and will contribute to the steady erosion of national values and citizenship responsibility unless nipped in the bud by exposure whenever it occurs. Government cannot be conducted as was the dance hall operation which advertised good clean dancing every night but Sunday. <laughs> Government, like Caesar's wife, has to maintain itself above any suspicion, whatever, every day of the week, including Sunday, if it is to merit and keep the respect of its people. Will the real Lyndon Johnson please stand up to tell the American people why and by what process his position on concentrating all power in Washington changed from opposition to, and I quote, the growing and menacing concentration of power in central government to his present advocacy of programs which are directed at concentrating all power in the hands of the federal government. In the U.S. Senate, Lyndon Johnson called for, quote, enforcement of laws designed to protect private property from physical occupation. As vice president, he moved completely across the spectrum to the point where he favored all civil rights demonstrations, especially sit-ins. On the question of federal aid to education, Lyndon Johnson, as a senator from Texas, strongly opposed, quote, the entry of the federal government in the general field of public education, 
unquote. Since his emergence on the executive scene, he has vigorously supported all forms of federal intervention in all public education. As a Texas Senator, Johnson pledged, and I quote, to protect the decisions of local school districts in the operation and control of their schools, unquote. As vice president, he went 180 degrees away from his previous stand and upheld the purported right of the federal government to use U.S. troops to enforce desegregation of schools. On Medicare, the story is the same. Johnson labeled the program a, quote, socialist proposal and supported the alternative Kerr-Mills plan, which allows state participation. As vice president, and to no one's great surprise, the record being what it is, he moved camps again and wound up favoring a program for the aged financed through the Social Security system. Nowhere is the confused record more confused, if such a thing is possible, as in Johnson's record on the so-called right-to-work laws. As a senator from the highly individualistic state of Texas, he endorsed the right-to-work legislation as a necessary measure for the prosperity of the state and for the free enterprise system. But by 1960, under the prodding of the labor bosses and in a bid for the labor vote, LBJ supported a national law which would completely repeal all right-to-work measures enacted by the states. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we have every right to ask, will the real Lyndon Johnson please stand up? In this dramatic hour of history, we Americans stand at the forks of the road. To the left, the glittering expanse of smooth pavement impels many to take the easy course. Let tomorrow care for itself and let tomorrow's generations pay the toll. To the right, there is the straight path that is the way of the Constitution. Those who tread it do so in devotion and with sacrifice. It is not always the easiest way, but unlike the road to the left, it is well marked and not difficult to follow by those who believe it to have been built by Almighty God. The great contest now shaping will be decided by a nation of free men and women at the polls. It may well be the last opportunity for Americans to have a free and clear choice to exercise mature judgment and to demonstrate again the traits of character which have for almost 200 years stamped our people as something unique in the history of mankind. If Americans have the courage to face facts, if they want victory over both domestic self-interest and foreign foes, if they want integrity in the White House and sound business practices in government, they will meet the challenge head on and send Lyndon Baines Johnson back to his cows. If Americans fail to heed the clear warnings of pending disaster and choose the broad inviting highway of personal security, our children and theirs will damn us down through the years and the decades to come. Both history and posterity will stand witness to our actions at this hour. May God lend strength to us all to meet our responsibilities as Americans and concerned citizens. Let us go forth to the contest strong in the knowledge that right is right and that left is wrong. We have a big job to do, but we have the tools to do that job, not the least of which is the man on whose behalf we are privileged to labor, the Arizona Senator Barry M. Goldwater. Now, Nikita Khrushchev doesn't want Goldwater, 
Gus Hall, Ben Davis, and the communist press in this country don't want Goldwater. The Americans for Democratic Action don't want Goldwater. The labor bosses, including the Ruther brothers, don't want Goldwater. The socialists, including Norman Thomas, don't want Goldwater. Walter Rostow, Dean Rusk, Bobby McNamara, William Wheeland, Hubert Humphrey, the liberals, their press and commentator mouthpieces, and lastly, LBJ himself don't want Goldwater. But I'll leave it to you, ladies and gentlemen, if any candidate for the presidency of the United States ever came before the people of this country with a finer set of recommendations than those represented by that type of opposition. We're going to do the job. Let's get to it.